Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 3. We're looking at verses 1 through 10 today as we continue our series through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Most of you understand the burden of the impossible. What I mean is, is that most of us, I'm going to go ahead and say, I think all of us, know what it's like to be in a situation where you know there is no way. You're in a situation, you are in a place where you are in need, but there is no solution to your particular problem. There is no answer to your question. You are in an impossible circumstance. There is nothing you can do. You cannot extricate yourself. You cannot help yourself. You cannot change it. Whatever it is. Now, we're not always in that kind of a situation, but we find up in situations like this. We feel the burden of the impossible, and this leads to frustration and anger. Sometimes it leads to defeat and despair, and you want to just give up because you don't know how to continue because you're facing the burden of the impossible. You're carrying this weight. And then, and then we're Christians, so we're reading the Bible, we're listening to sermons, and we, we read about these, these great signs and wonders, these miracles of God where walls fall and seas are parted, where lepers are, are cured and demons are cast out and the lame walk and the mute speak. We see all of these miracles and we go, wow, good story, bro. It's like, I'm not seeing that in my life. I see God doing the impossible in the Bible, but we sometimes think I don't see God doing the impossible now. So as we're looking at this passage, Acts chapter 3, and as we're in the whole book of Acts, we're going to encounter more of these stories, these historical anecdotes, right? These, these situations in which God does the impossible, when there is a miraculous work, a sign, or a wonder. And I want us to have a better understanding of what it meant then and what it means today. I want us to understand that God's power has not diminished over the years. He has not grown weary. He is present and he is active. He is all-powerful. And the same power that was at work in creation in the signs and wonders that we see during the times of the prophets and the apostles, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is still active today. So here's the principle that we're going to see in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. It is this. The miracles in Scripture teach us to hope in the power of God. The miracles in Scripture, what we read about, they teach us to hope present day, to hope continually in the power of God in our lives. Now, it's easy for this sort of a sermon, especially as we're touching on the subject of miracles, signs and wonders, for it to become somewhat academic because we want to define terms and we want to have a, a proper understanding of, of what miracles are and how we should think about them. And what about miracles today and all of that? I don't want it to be that. That's not my job as a preacher. It, it, my job is not to simply educate us. What I want us to do is I want us to see what miracles are and what God is doing and how we should respond. 
So to do this, I want us to, uh, to we're going to follow a pretty basic outline here. Right? In verse 1, we're going to see the context of a miracle, right? When the miracle happens. And then in verses 2 through 7, we're going to see the need for a miracle. And then in verses 8 through 10, we want to see the response to a miracle. So as we're walking through this, this account, this historical account, realize we're going to be formulating definitions of words. We're going to be drawing lines of application. And it's critical that we do not treat this as an investigation merely into what God did, but an understanding in terms of what God does. So first we see the context of a miracle in verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So right away, we, we, we kind of are, are in familiar territory if you've been going through the book of Acts with us. In the first two chapters, we've already seen that Peter, the disciple Peter, now this apostle Peter, who was once sort of a, a big mouth that was inconsistent, has been raised up by the power of God to be a leader, in fact, the leader among the apostles. He's always the go-to guy now. He's always out front. God pushes him out front to speak, to preach, to lead. So here we are. It's Peter and it's John going to the temple. Now, John here is the same John that wrote the book of Revelation, the same John that wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, same John that wrote the gospel of John. This is the John that was a part of the trio, Peter, James, John. These are the three guys that were really tight with each other and very close to Christ. Christ was closer to them than he was to the rest of the 12, relationally, and he was closer to the 12 than he was to the rest of the disciples at large. So here we have Peter and John. These are close friends. Now they're co-ministers uh, in the gospel, and they're on their way to the temple at the hour of prayer. You see, the early church, before the temple was destroyed in AD 70, the early church, these early Jewish Christians, continued to go to temple. Now, while they stopped offering sacrifices because they understood that Jesus was the sacrifice once for all that takes away sins and that those offerings of animals were merely pointing to the ultimate sacrifice in Christ, they continued to go to the temple. And they continued to go to the temple because, well, that's where everybody went. That's where prayers were offered three times a day, in the morning, in the afternoon, and at sundown. It, there was opportunities for evangelism as well as fellowship, prayer, the whole thing. So they're continuing to go to the temple to pray. And here it says it's the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. They're going at 3 p.m. They're going in the afternoon to pray. This is everyday life. This is normal for them. There's nothing special going on. And this is what's interesting about miracles. You, see, you tend to see them happening in, in, in these different environments, right? In one sense, when you read like the book of Exodus, for example, you see miracles happening in the midst of a dramatic encounter, dramatic history. You've got the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt, oppressed by ungodly rulers, and God raises up Moses to go and confront Pharaoh. And he says, listen, you tell Pharaoh, if he doesn't let my people go, I'm going to rain down miracles on them. And it ain't the kind of miracles you want, okay? We're talking plagues, locusts, death. Like, make sure he knows that the miracles are coming. Miracles aren't always good, right? These signs and wonders. So he, he, he sort of announces what's going to happen. Sometimes miracles are announced. They're foreshadows, the resurrection of Christ. But then at other times, miracles seem to happen in the midst of ordinary everyday life. And that's what's happening here. Now, in either case, the purpose of miracles was to, was to demonstrate the, the, the character of God. It, 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 was to, it was to showcase the power of God. 
It's what miracles did. But they also served to sort of verify God's word or God's messenger. See, miracles tended to happen in scripture during these times of prophets or apostles, right? And when these miracles would happen, uh, it demonstrates that the God that is being noted, the God, that is be, the God that is being spoken of is true and he is almighty. He holds the creation in his hand and can do as he wills. But at the same time, it's verifying that the messenger is true, that the messenger is God's messenger or that God's word should be trusted and listened to. That's really the purpose of miracles. Now, before we go any farther, we should probably define miracle. This is actually important, right? Now, it may seem tedious and nerdy for some of you, but this is important because how you define a miracle really is what determines whether or not you believe miracles happen today. And even among those who have a really nice, tight definition of miracles, uh, sometimes the unpacking of that definition leaves a lot to be desired. So I want us to be careful here. I want us to be biblical. Now, one of the ways in which miracles is commonly defined is, was actually made really popular uh, by Dr. R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul, uh, now with the Lord, uh, a, a great writer, great theologian, good guy, Presbyterian. It's fine, it's good, it's cool. Sproul said this, a miracle is an extraordinary work performed by the immediate power of God in the external perceivable world, which is an act against nature that only God can do. Now, it's a very tight, very technical definition, even if it's not that long. It's an extraordinary work performed by the immediate power of God. This is something that God does that only God can do. It is verifiable. It happens in the external perceivable world. It cannot be explained away by natural causes or nature. It is supernatural, verifiable. Now, some people that take this definition, most people, who, and this is many in the Reformed tradition, take this definition, extraordinary work performed by the immediate power of God in the external perceivable world, which is an act against nature that only God can do, leads them to conclude, okay, well, if that's what a miracle is, and we see those happening in scripture, but we don't see those happening today, therefore miracles do not happen today. Now, that would be Sproul's position, and at least it was. It might have changed. You know, I, I don't, I'm not saying it has. I'm just saying it could have changed. Um, that was Sproul's position, and, that, and that's, a, that's a common definition. Now, guys like Sproul, don't, they would never argue that God is inactive or that his power is not demonstrated today. He's not arguing that God doesn't answer prayer or that people aren't healed. All of that's true. But in that particular tradition, the Reformed tradition, if they define it tightly like that, they're, they're essentially working off of an idea of providence. You see, we believe that, that there, it, it's not as if the world operates according to natural laws that exist apart from God. The world operates according to natural laws because God says so, because God sustains it all. He is in control. He upholds every molecule by the word of his power. He is that sovereign, that much in control. So in, in the Reformed tradition, we oftentimes talk about ordinary providence, which we think of laws of nature, and extraordinary providence, which is God then performing some sort of miracle sign or wonder. So in the Reformed tradition, it's all the work of God. It's all providence. It's either extraordinary, which is from time to time throughout the history of redemption, not common, or it's ordinary. So some of them draw this line where they would say like, there are no miracles today. 
And then other people would say, well, no, we think so. We think miracles do happen, but maybe they redefine miracles or, or, or they just have a different definition. Or, or some people would say miracles happen all the time. You just got to have eyes to see them. I'd like to give you my definition of miracle. And I'm certainly not a better theologian than R.C. Sproul, but I like my definition better, okay? I, I, my definition helps me to understand, I believe, what I see in Scripture as what miracles are, but it also helps me to know what miracles are supposed to do, what my understanding of miracles are supposed to do to me. I would argue that a miracle is a supernatural work of God that demonstrates his power and many other things and strengthens my faith. That's what I think a miracle is. It's a supernatural, so it's still not according to the laws of nature. This is something that only God can do. It is a supernatural work of God that demonstrates his power, his grace, his mercy, and strengthens my faith. That's a miracle. And with this definition of miracle, I believe we have a little bit more freedom to, uh, to, to identify some things as a miracle today that aren't necessarily a sign or a wonder. See, here's the problem. People, what we tend to do is we come up with a definition or we pick a definition. That's what most of us do. We pick a definition. I like that definition best. I'm going with that one. And then we join that camp and we draw really hard lines and we kind of paint ourselves into a corner. And I want us to be careful because the Bible doesn't offer up a definition of miracle. It doesn't do that. It says miracle. It gives us examples of miracles and of God's mighty power of signs and wonders, but it's not a dictionary. It is the very word of God. It is absolutely true and trustworthy. So when we're talking about what God does and what miracles are, and what their purposes are, let's be careful to not conclude that God is somehow inactive today. And however you want to define it, we have to agree that God acts supernaturally for his glory and for our good. The context of a miracle can be ordinary, everyday life. That's what it's going to be for most of us. For others, it might be in the context of something far more dramatic and extreme, like in the days of Moses or the apostles. But in verses 2 through 7, we see this need for a miracle. Look at verses 2 through 5. We'll start with those. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering into the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms and Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Ordinary, everyday life. Peter and John are going into the temple. They're passing through a gate, popular gate. Everybody knows the gate. As they're walking through, there's a guy, disabled man, begging, asking for money, change, alms. They've, they've seen this sort of a thing hundreds of times throughout their life. The, the, the disabled man is, is called lame. It's an old word. It just means, it means crippled. It means disabled. It means he's, he's not able to care for himself physically. His legs don't work. And it's been this way since birth. He doesn't have, he doesn't have a, a, a limp, okay? He, he's not, he's not strong. He doesn't have flat feet like me. Like my feet always hurt because they're just fat and flat. That's my feet. There's no arch. So they're always achy. That's like, oh, boo-hoo, poor me. This guy can't walk. He has to be carried by his friends and family wherever he wants to go. 
And because back then they didn't bother to treat people with disabilities with any kind of dignity, typically as a culture, families might, but as a culture they didn't, they wouldn't invest in them or teach them trades that they could carry out. This guy can move his arms. I'm sure he could be a productive member of society, but they basically just wrote them off. And so the family would have to care for them. And this guy was poor, so he had to go be placed at a popular locale where there was lots of traffic and ask for alms. Alms, it means charity. It means, it means monetary gifts. He's at the beautiful gate. You guys know which gate is the beautiful gate? Nobody knows. Anyways, everybody like five pages in the commentaries on the beautiful gate. And like in the end, it's like, well, we don't know which one it is. Okay, thanks. Thanks for wasting our time. We don't know. But it, the point is it was a popular gate. Like everybody, everybody knows this place. That's where the guy went. Now, what's the need for a miracle here? Does he really need a miracle? You know, yeah, I mean, if, if, if walking is the goal, he needs a miracle because there is no procedure, there is no surgery, there's no magic potion, there's no elixir, there's no snake oil, there's nothing that he can do, take, or create that will give him the ability to walk. If, if, if his need is walking mobility, then yes, he needs a miracle. And we all find ourselves in situations like this, right, where our circumstances are such that if the circumstances are going to change, it might require a miracle, like something dramatic. Most of the time for us, it doesn't require a miracle for our circumstances to change. Not a miracle. Not in the technical sense. Not in a supernatural work of God sense. In a providential work of God, yes. God works in the minds of people and moves the heart of the king in whichever way he desires. But the real need for a miracle always goes beyond the circumstance or the immediate need or the individual. The real need for a miracle goes beyond the, the, the individual. It goes beyond me to the demonstration or the need to demonstrate the power and the kindness of God. See, the real need, the real purpose, right? The real goal is to show that God is not only powerful and sovereign, but that he is compassionate and generous and kind. You see, miracles, miracles are always grace. It's grace. God doesn't owe anyone anything. And so when God acts in a unilateral way like this, to bless, to heal, to restore, to fix, to renew. It's grace. It's undeserved favor. Now notice what's happening here. There's a need for a miracle and he's going to experience this miracle and miracles cannot be explained by natural laws. Look at verses six and seven. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up, and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Peter is not some lion, shifty, greasy televangelist who promises to heal people who never does. This is a real healing. This is a wonder. This is a miracle in the fullest, most complete technical sense of the word. This man has not been able to walk a day in his life. His feet, his ankles, his legs did not work. And now they do. On the spot, immediate, God directly intervened and healed this man. It's verifiable. People see it. They will testify of it. There's no arguing about what happened. There is no other explanation. This miracle can only be explained 
by looking to God or you have to ignore it. Now, look at the response. Look at the response, verses eight through 10. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. There's two responses here, right? There's the response of a believer, the response of faith, and then there's the response of the world. Now, there's a third option as well, where people just ultimately just dismiss, like, ah, bah, I don't, whatever, I'm not even, you know. Remember the people when, when, when uh, the, these Christians began to speak in tongues in Acts, and, uh, and, and the, the, the tongues of fire were on their head, and they all, they all began to speak in these languages that they didn't know, but they were foreign languages, and then all of the, these, uh, these foreigners around them could hear them in their languages, and they're like, wow, they're speaking languages. They knew a miracle was happening, but the people off in the distance were like, that eh, sounds like they're drunk. I don't know what they're really doing. That is a response to a miracle like this. Some people just dismiss it because they don't want to try to understand it. But here are the two responses. One, by a believer, this disabled man, he responded in faith. He was rejoicing. He's believing, right? He's worshiping. This is what happens when God intervenes and does the impossible, when he does the thing that you know no one else can do, when he does this, your response is what? Gratitude, relief, joy, thanksgiving, maybe crying, maybe, maybe weeping with grateful, joyful tears. He worships, he leaps, he's jumping up and down. He's got a kind of joy that we call exulting. He's got a kind of joy in him that's making him move all over the place. He's that animated. And he's so animated that everybody's watching and the world around him, right? And by world, I don't mean unreligious people because these are all religious people, these are Jews, but they're watching him. These aren't Christians, they're, they're watching him and they know who he is. They know that guy. That's not some actor. And that's not, this is not a goof. This is not a plant that they know him. That's the guy that's been out there forever. They know him. If, if they're from the neighborhood, they know that's the, that's the guy who's disabled. He's never been able to walk, but there he is walking. No, dancing running, jumping, singing, praising God. That's the response. You know, the response, when you experience the, the, the miracle, the divine power of God, the response is almost always a kind of testimony. Like, you will talk about it. You can't help but talk about it. You can't hold it in because it was such a gift, such a mercy, such a grace. You want to share that good news and testify to the giver of the gift. And this is the thing. When you experience the miracle, you, you genuinely move from beyond the work that was done in you or for you to the one who actually performed the work and he becomes the focus. I love this, this account in, uh, in Mark chapter 7. Listen to this. Mark chapter 7, verse uh, 31. And Jesus returned to the region of Tyre and went through Sidon uh, to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. I think this is awesome. <laughs> it just sounds... It's, usually I feel like Jesus just says like, Boom, and it's done, right? Jesus puts his fingers into 
his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and he said to him, Ephatha, but that is be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. That is a miracle. It's a weird one. I mean, it's weird in that Jesus was spitting and putting his fingers in the guy's ears, but whatever, Jesus can do whatever he wants. Jesus does this thing, heals this guy. And then he says this, it says, Jesus charged them to tell no one. Don't tell anybody that big miracle, that big thing, that thing I just did, that super impressive thing. You're all buzzing about that. Shush, don't say anything. Now Jesus does this, especially in the gospels from time to time. Somebody will say, you're the Messiah. And Jesus will be like, chill with the Messiah thing. And it wasn't because he didn't want to be recognized as the Messiah. He was, he affirmed it again and again, especially when he called himself the son of man. That's a messianic title. He said, shush, because the people's general concept of the Messiah was a political leader that would re- lead a revolt. And he was like, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not leading a po- political revolt. I'm not, I'm not running for president, right? Uh, that's, not, that's not what I'm doing. I'm establishing a spiritual kingdom. So he's like, you know, just, just chill on that. So here he is again. He's like, hey, listen, I know this is, this is exciting stuff, but uh, just shut up about the whole miracle thing for now. Like, keep it, keep it quiet. And, then, uh, and they're like, no. No, that's not going to happen. Uh, it's Jesus, the healer, saying, don't tell anybody. And, uh, and then it says this. The more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. <laughs> the, the, like they, like the, the more he said don't, the more they were like, I have to. I can't hold it in. I'm sorry, Jesus. I know I'm going against what you said. Was it sin then? Hmm, we'll never know. They go and they, 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 they can't shut up about it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They can't hold it in. That's the response of faith to the power of God. You testify to what he has done. And the world is responding as well here in this passage, in verses uh, 9 and 10. And you can see that they're, they're filled with a wonder and an amazement. Right? They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. It doesn't mean that they really understand what happened. It doesn't mean that they're crediting this to, to Jesus, uh, to, to the gospel ministry, but they can't deny what happened. That happened. Homeboy is walking, leaping, dancing, rejoicing. So they're amazed. So we look at this account of a miracle. What do we do with it? The miracles and scriptures teach us to hope in the power of God today. Hold on to that. The miracles and scripture teach us to hope in the power of God today. We can quibble about the definition of the word miracle. That's fine. That's a, there's a place for arguing and debating and being nerdy about it. That's, that's cool. Make a t-shirt, sell them, like whatever. But we need to recognize that this is not merely an academic exercise for us. This relates to our faith, our communion with God, and the life that God calls us to live together. So let me remind you, however you want to define miracle, every Christian here has experienced the supernatural power of God. Every Christian. Every Christian here has experienced the life-changing, soul-transforming power of God. The, The power of God that created the heavens and the earth, the power that is at work through the miracles and signs and wonders of the apostles and the prophets, the power that rose Jesus from the dead, 
That divine power is a power you have experienced in your life because, <laughs> not because you experienced the, the miracle of birth, which is not a miracle, by the way. It's awesome and weird and awesome and amazing, but it's not a miracle. Birth is not a miracle, but the new birth, ah, the new birth, I will say that is a miracle because it is the supernatural work of God that cannot be explained through any natural laws. It is a supernatural work of God that demonstrates his power and his kindness and his mercy and gives us faith. Every Christian has been born again. What is impossible with us is possible with God. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and what does Jesus say to him? Hey man, you've gotta be born again. Sends him on his way. He walks, he kicks it because he doesn't know what to do. Jesus frequently says to, to, says to his disciples things like, hey, listen, uh, this is, here's the truth. And then the response is, then how does anybody escape hell, Jesus? That w w Let me give you an example. In Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, who then can be saved? Even they get it. They even get it. How's anybody get saved? Like, what's our hope then? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This is the point. Every Christian has experienced the impossible power of God in their lives in bringing them to faith. Whether you were five years old or 85 years old, when it happened, you experienced it. You've experienced conversion. You've experienced sanctification. That's God's supernatural power changing your character, changing your heart, making you to become more like Jesus, restoring in you the image of God. That cannot be explained by, by mere human activity. These stories, and I believe they're stories in the historical sense, they're true stories. These accounts they show us not just what God did, but they show us what God can do. And the expectation shouldn't merely be, well, oh, wow, man, he multiplied fish and loaves. I hope he multiplies fish and loaves today. The, the point should be, wow, God miraculously accomplished things for his glory and the good of his people. I pray that he will do that for me today, wherever my need is. So think about it. Are you in need? Are you facing the burden of the impossible? Most of the time, most of the time, the miracle, the real miracle that we need isn't in our circumstances. Sometimes it is. I don't think most of the time it is. We don't, we oftentimes want our circumstances to, to be changed, to fit us. But what most of us desperately need, and I think most of us even know this, is we need our hearts to be changed for us to fit our circumstances. Now that's a miracle. You see all kinds of situations change all the time in dramatic fashion, make for great stories. But the heart change, that's divine power. And what I see in people in this church, in my own heart, is that at times it's like, you know what, I don't think God's going to do it. I need God to work in me. I need God to do this. And we think it's not going to happen. 
We don't say it this way, but we act as if it's just too hard for God. We should know better, but we act like that's just not something that he does. But one of the things, one of the refrains that God says about himself throughout scripture again and again and again is ain't nothing hard for me. That's what he says, right? Listen to Jeremiah 32, uh, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And God says it of himself again and again and again. Why does God have to keep saying this to us? Why does God have to keep saying nothing is too hard for me? Because we believe that it is. I don't care what your confessional theology says. You can have 1689 tattooed on your hand or whatever dumb thing you want to do. You can be like all about your... We don't believe it half of the time. So God reminds us, nothing is too hard for me. You've given up. You've become so weary, so discouraged. You forgot. And you know what we've forgotten? You know why we lose hope? Why we lose our grip on what God can do? It's because we've lost our grip on what God has already done in our lives. I mean, just think back. Brothers, sisters, think back into your life, have you forgotten what God has already done? See, if I start to think back about all the ways in which God has accomplished what I perceive to be impossible, all the things, all the times that God has demonstrated his power in my life, when I didn't deserve it, didn't have a way forward, God made things happen again and again and again. And the more I remember these things, the more I meditate on these things, the more thankful I am for what he did and the more hopeful I am for what he can do. You see, we read about miracles and we sometimes get caught up in the signs and wonders. Here's the bottom line. Y'all don't need signs and wonders. But you do need divine power. The healing of, of, of legs, the, the, the restoration of our sight, those are great gifts, but they're temporal. What we need is, is divine power that actually changes the heart and fits us for our circumstances. God's power is at work in us today. And so I would encourage you, do not lose sight of Jesus in all of this because Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, what we call the gospel, that is where we see the power of God at work in saving sinners and in changing us. Let me close with just two verses here, two different passages. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The most impossible thing you will ever face in your life, and this may be you, the most impossible, yeah, there's a bird in here. We got a bird. Everybody knows the bird? All right, cool. It's been, it's, been, it's been with us all day. It's been actually, it's been kind of fun. We can't get it to leave. The most impossible thing that any human being will ever face is that they are condemned by God for their sins. There is no way out. You can't get out of that. You can't extricate yourself. You can't clean yourself up. You can't, you can't, you can't hide from God. That's an impossible situation. You are doomed and damned. 
But what is impossible with man is possible with God. Nothing's impossible for him. Nothing's hard for him. So he gives us his son who takes our guilt and our damnation. He takes our punishment. He, ta- he, he absorbs our doom and he gives us grace and restoration in life. See, the gospel is the power of God for salvation because it takes divine power to rescue sinners from death and hell. And 1 Corinthians 1.18 for the word of the cross, that is the message that we preach. It's what we believe. It's, it, it's, it's, our, it's our confession. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God being saved. That's the whole process. Where you are reconciled to God, put at peace with him. You are being changed and transformed in your spirit. And the spirit will carry that all the way to completion to the very end. It's the power of God at work in you and in me. So let's trust him. Let's look back at these signs and wonders and these miracles and hope in the power of God today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for, uh, for your mercy. We don't deserve your gifts or your kindness, and yet you lavish it upon us in so many ways. We pray, God, that we would be a people that expect your power to be at work in us and around us. Lord, however we define miracle, we know that you are active, that you are involved in the details, and that we have hope in this life, hope to change, hope to see change, because you are all-powerful, and you are our God, and we are your people. In Jesus' name, amen.